you look at something like that, you think it's worldly. Yeah. I mean, how can you give any credit, you know, to Confucius? Yes. Yeah. That's heresy. Yeah. You know, but it's a failure to understand what your Bible says about creation and humanity right. and the image of God. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner podcast, A Place for Thinkers. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and today I am joined by Father David Beckman, of the ACNA Church, Anglican Church of North America. Before we jump into our discussion today on all things controversial, remember to share this podcast. If you want to help us out, a lot of you have been saying how much you enjoy the podcast. Share, 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 share with every single person you know on Facebook, Twitter, Getter. I don't want to say Gab, but if you're there, it's not going to hurt. But share it out. That's the most important thing you can do because that gets our listener base up, and we are continuing to grow, so we appreciate those who are doing that. Second thing you can do is go to solomonscorner.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We have a book promotion that we've worked out where people will get 50% off one of our books in September. So subscribe to that, and in September we will send out the promo code. So please subscribe to our newsletter. Tell your friends for that. And also review us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us a lot. So for example, if just by happenstance, you might think we sound like Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro, that's also appropriate for the reviews. So feel free to leave whatever comment you like just to make sure it's a five star. Lastly, we are working on our e-store, so we will have more coming on that. We appreciate everybody who's given us feedback on the products that we are currently looking at. With all that being said, we are finally ready to start our conversation with Father David Beckman. David? Very excited for you to be here, because without you, I wouldn't be in the Anglican Church, so we'll just drop that line right there, but why don't you tell some people who are listening who you are, what you do, how you suckered me into the Anglican Church. We can get to that later, but you know, mostly who you are. Well, Daniel, it's a great pleasure to be with you all again. We've, uh, you've, having moved away from Chattanooga, where we reside, we've certainly missed you all, um, and, uh, but you have moved to a lovely place. I understand that a lot of families like moving as part of the yes, state, they do. which especially, is very interesting. Especially as, you know, places like California and New York. I know. They're know. very fa- uh, family unfriendly at yes. the present. Your state is up there, too. Uh, it is. It is. Yeah, we worry about it sometimes, but it's up there. <laughs> <clears throat> but at any rate, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I haven't been in Anglican all my life. Uh, I haven't been Christian all my life, really, though I was uh, christened as a, a you know, as a baby in the Methodist church. My family is Methodist, but uh, they quit going to church. Um, I eventually began to follow the Lord seriously as a senior in high school. Real quick, were you? where did you grow up? Chattanooga area. You grew, oh, you grew up in Chattanooga. Okay. Yes, uh-huh, right. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but... Uh, uh, I started attending a Presbyterian church, uh, moved over to a Baptist church, so, and, and, I, and then it was time to go to college. So, I mean, I was very—I I had no preferences regarding denominations at all. Yeah. I went to a Bible church up there in St. Louis. and um, But as, t- as time went by, and this is—a lot of this is, is because of all the— Bible study that I received through what is now Precept Ministries. Oh, yeah. I was, okay. I, um, yeah. Used to I work in, there. I was in, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was involved there back in the early days. Okay. And um, so got a lot of good Bible teaching there and then from my churches as well. Um, 
I, in, in time, I began to learn some church history and uh, started reading the Westminster Confession. Yeah. And I suddenly discovered, oh, I'm Presbyterian. I didn't know I was Presbyterian. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, my wife and I, by this time I'm married and so forth, and uh, we moved into the PCA and I went to Covenant Seminary and I was a uh, teaching elder, as they call them, in the um, PCA for about 13 years or so. Okay. But uh, eventually I moved into Anglicanism. We were confirmed in the Episcopal Missionary Church in 2004. Now for the non-Presbyterians, yeah. what is the equivalent in other denominations as far as like a teaching elder? Would that be like The teaching elder is the or? pastor or the preacher. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, All right. yeah. The idea is you know, they, they want the, you know, in their church government, it's representative. And so you have these elders that are chosen by the people to represent the people uh, and then it's kind of funny. See, they, they in, the, in the PCA at any rate, um, officially they're only supposed to have two offices. There's the deacons and the elders. But one of those elders is a teaching elder that belongs to the presbytery and is the pastor. So it's really three offices, gotcha. practically speaking, but they don't want to say that. And a lot of that goes back to how, to their sensitivity to the importance of lay leadership because the clergy kind of took over the the Southern Presbyterian Church and it went liberal and the lay people didn't like that and so they're trying to keep the lay involvement involved. So, uh, but yeah. any rate, uh, I've been something of everything. Yeah, I mean, I was ordained in, as a Baptist in 1980. Man, alive! You're a real theological mutt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I've been dispensational, premillennial. I've been. Historic premillennial. I've been amillennial. That's the and now like a, I'm and like now a I'm post kid who went through the Christian foster care system. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just taking a little bit with you every day. It's just exactly yeah. yeah. Well, I've always told myself, you know, we're supposed to be learning things, and yeah. and I trust that my learning is leading me forward to more accuracy. And uh, you know, though there's some people who think I've you know I've left accuracy. I've I've left the truth. But uh, anyway, here I am. Yeah. Well, awesome. And you so, also did some missionary work in the Caymans we were talking about before. Well, earlier. yeah, was, that was, that was that my about? first PCA pastorate. It just so happened there was a PCA church <laughs> on Grand Cayman Island. And um, and it was, just, it was really a wonderful providence uh, when I was, like I said, I eventually wound up at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And um, when I graduated, we were trying to hang around in St. Louis, but nothing was happening. And on the day that I, that I was going to go and uh, talk with somebody at the seminary about the possibility of a pastorate somewhere else, I stopped by uh, David Calhoun's uh, church history professor's house because we were friends. Okay. The night before, he'd received a phone call from Southern Florida asking him if he knew anybody that'd be interested in taking the church down in Grand Cayman. <laughs> so the first, so the first day I'm willing to talk to somebody about somewhere else besides St. Louis is the day that I talked to him after he just and I was the first person that yeah. he met, um, and uh, so. Lo and behold, we wound up being down there for about five and a half years. So Wow. Yeah. Man alive. So what you're saying is in order to get in God's favor and find yourself in a beautiful place doing theological Christian work is you gotta jump from denomination to denomination to denomination and then <laughs> and then just pray for forgiveness and then boom. Pray for forgiveness. <laughs> It has been odd that we seem to wind up in all these places where people want to live. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, we uh, helped start Hilton Head Christian School and live in Hilton Head for a number of years. Uh, wow. And then you know, we wound up in the Cayman Islands. Um, you know, we've we've lived in England. We've lived, you know, uh, and we're in Chattanooga. Everybody wants to move to Chattanooga. It's just really hilarious. Man, alive. You're like a... 
Christian CIA agent. You know what I mean? It's like we, we yeah. can bring in. So, so now that you're out, tell us the secrets. <laughs> Are you going to write a book? A thriller? Um, right, right. But that's, so anyway. that's a good segue, though, because one of the reasons why we had you on is because you spent some time at the kilns. Yes. And explain to people what the kilns are and and uh, who you bribed to go out there. And, you know, was there drug yeah. money involved? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is, um, you know, I'm another one of these people that, I mean, let's say, I mean, I've been a Christian for, I don't know how long it's been now. But is it going on fifty years or she something? Looks to I the don't wife, know. Sheila. Yeah, all of his Christian birth certificate. She, yeah, but well, she wasn't there. She doesn't know. So, but so anyway, um, so I don't remember when I first started reading C.S. Lewis, but I'm pretty sure it was probably probably when I was uh, at uh, Washington University uh, at a, some Campus Crusader University yeah. conference in Missouri. But um, uh, anyhow, so you know, I've been a lifelong fan practically since that time, and. Um, uh, so when we eventually settled into to Chattanooga, having been away from Chattanooga, we eventually moved back there. And or I say we, I moved back, but I brought my family with me. Um, and uh, I start, uh, I was involved with a church plant, and we started a C.S. Lewis Society because so many of our members were bookish people, and yeah. I was trying to find a way that they would be able to meet new people and yet it'd be something that they were talented in and that sort of thing. So we started a C.S. Lewis Society, and um, and that led from one thing to another, and I started getting network with the, the scholars and the speakers and the authors that are in the C.S. Lewis network and these sorts of things. And um, so um, there came a point where uh, the, the uh, things that I was doing, just kind of the doors closed, and I was in limbo, and my wife was praying, um, that the Lord would just have somebody call me up and uh, offer me a job of some kind. And uh, so the lady who had been taking care of C.S. Lewis's home in Oxford called the Kilms uh, was a friend of ours, and we'd actually stayed there some before. And um, so she called me up asked me if I wanted a job, and I said no because we were about to have a, another grandchild, and I just couldn't conceive of you know moving yeah. to England. You know? and, but everybody said no, you got to do this. You know, you got to do this. I had one friend say, if you don't do this, I will kill you. <laughs> and so, so, so I said, okay, we did. And so we sold our house in Chattanooga and moved to England. Uh, and we were going to be there for a couple of years or so, but we wound up just being there for a year. So what you're saying is, is that under threat, you were put in house arrest in the kilns. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my wife and I, we basically were in charge of taking care of C.S. Lewis's house and leading tours and, um, you know, just being involved with with oxford yeah university so you, life and okay so forth, cool so, so you got to do some stuff with oxford university well yeah i took and... classes at wickliffe hall uh oh, no co- wickliffe college wickliffe hall college yeah um uh just because just just to network with people yeah um and of course we were able to go to university lectures and uh I, you know it was you know you're just part of it there you know part of the life and uh it was it was really great really enjoyed it we're big uh Anglophiles and yeah. you know, and we had been to Oxford several times before that and so 
Wow. We have friends there already and that kind of thing. So, so what's it cool. like sleep? Like, I mean, you slept there, right? At his house? Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. We're, we had, uh, we actually had Warney's. We lived in Warney's apartments. Okay. They had a, when Warney moved to the house, they built a little addition onto the back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a book about that. Yes, I have yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Life with a Professor, if anybody wants yes, to get that. Yes, I have yeah. them. I'll post them on social media and make sure people can get a copy. But where, anyhow, where do yeah. do they actually get a copy of your books? Is there? Is... Uh, Amazon. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. We'll just post them Amazon. for you guys. Yeah. Put links sure. in, the, in the notes. Yeah, and it's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So you know, the kilns right now is supposed to be a. It's not supposed to be a museum. It's supposed to be a place of, uh, you know, of like a living scholarly place. Uh, but what it is is it's just people who tend to be C.S. Lewis fans that are doing studies in Oxford, uh, and they opt to uh, uh, reside there. You know, mm-hmm. while they're in Oxford oh, doing wow. their work. Okay. Uh, and uh, and and whoever is in charge of the house, if they're people like ourselves, we weren't students. You know, you know, we were you know just there full time taking care of things. You know, we would, you know, try to get people together and have social life and have conversations yeah. and stuff like that. You know, but you're also just spending a lot of time taking care of an old house and taking helping tours and 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 you never know who's going to show up. You know, who's going to come to your door. Uh, we had some really wonderful experiences. Yeah, didn't Eric Metaxas show up? Yeah, uh, well, well, that was the thing is he came to Oxford to do a series that you can see online of um, interviews with different people. Yeah, Peter Hitchens, Michael Ward, Walter Hooper, and those those sorts of people. And uh, but they, you know, of course, uh, had to you know come and visit oh, yeah. the Kins, and so we we were there with them for a while. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, one there's one day uh, there's a prof- an English professor at Lee University who always brings a group of students over to uh, the kilns every Lee year. Lee is in Tennessee, right? Yeah, uh huh, yeah. North Chattanooga, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee area. Yeah. And uh, so, um, uh, you know, he brings his tour in, and here comes one of my former students through the door, one of my former high school students. Oh, hi, hi you, know, I, you know, and we, and it was like a, a reunion. We wound up. Uh, you know, she, she wound up marrying a friend of ours and, you know, it was, it was like from that, we, we renewed our relationship over in England and then it continued in Chattanooga (laughs) years later. It's just kind of funny, but like I say, you never know, uh, what, what you might run into. So it's, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, had a lot of good conversations and. Right. So basically for those millennials out there who have their idols in Marvel, this yeah. would be the equivalent of them going to Atlanta and sleeping next to a green screen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this yes. is where Thor picked up his hammer. Exactly. I can't yeah. believe it, but yours sounds much more meaningful. Yeah, you know? they, they've got their Thor comic book under their yeah. pillow. Yeah. 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 They're 45. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, for example, I mean, we got to be good friends with Walter Hooper was, you know, uh, Lewis's secretary towards the end of his life, oh, you know, wow. and, and is like the guy that's very much responsible for you know, are having Lewis's books in our hands today. Does he manage all the books still? Like, well, has well, he no. Well, he has passed away. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, was was rather elderly. He has passed away since we left there. But, uh, um, yeah. So. And so, who manages Lewis's books now? Like, are they just up for grabs? <sighs> yeah. There's. Well, no. Everything has to go through the St. Louis Company, which Douglas Gresham, his son-in-law, is pretty much in charge of. Mm. Son-in-law, have I got that right? Stepson. I always get those mixed up. Okay. And um, Walter Hooper's stepson or Lewis's? no, no, no. C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas okay. Gresham. Yeah, who's got a really good book uh, on Lewis's life. It's worthwhile reading. Okay. Um, but um, um, so so yeah, every, the the C.S. Lewis company is always in charge of things. But you see, Walter was was in on um, 
you know, all the stuff regards to, you know, copywriting stuff and so yep. forth from uh, very early on. Yeah. So he pretty much did what he wanted to do. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So now, wonderful man. With the abolition of man yes. and the hideous strength. Yeah. Let's transition into some of that a little bit. Okay. What do you think is the relevance to the church, especially, but also to the culture at large? Because the abolition of man is kind of a weird book for those that don't necessarily are privy to it. So I'll just give a little bit of a my synopsis. I, I finished it this morning mm-hmm. at about six thirty. So mm-hmm. <laughs> before you came over, <laughs> but the the thing that was very striking to me was that I'm really glad that I read the hideous strength first. Yes, and then read the abolition of man. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Because the hideous strength puts skin on his ideas, right? Narrative in the characters, and uh, but the abolition of man is just kind of weird because reading it today, you kind of think, man, this guy would sound like a conspiracy theorist to a certain extent. I mean, he's talking about people being conditioners and conditioning of people, and so what do you think are some of the significant highlights of the abolition of man and do you do you agree with the statement which I already know you do, but just you know, for the sake of the audio, you know, yeah. we're we're in that deconstructionist phase, so we just act like there's no professionality anymore. Mm-hmm. So we'll just ask the question for tradition's sake. Do you think it's relevant for today? Uh, absolutely, and that's why you you mentioned uh, it, it seemed you know someone today, if they were reading it, didn't know when the book was published. Yes, I think it was some sort of current yeah. conspiracy thing, because uh, it, it was. Um, he wrote it in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, but he saw uh, the trends of uh, of dehumanization and what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, with with that, and um, so what he it just so happens that his quote unquote prophecies have become fulfilled, and and so it 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 reads like something that could have been written currently. Yeah. Uh, so that's how applicable it is. Is it is it gives helps us to understand uh, why we're facing some of the things we're facing in our culture on a number of different levels. Yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, the other thing that's incredible too is, you know, it seems one of the things that I think my my confession is is that I went to a seminary and didn't tell people I hadn't read much of C.S. Lewis. I uh-huh. kind of kept that to myself. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, and then after I got out of seminary, I was like, I should, pro- I should yeah, probably I start really reading these read books. These books. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta catch up now. I'm not gonna be able to stay hidden for long. That's They're right. gonna find me out exactly. soon. You know, <laughs> They're gonna take me out to the dock anyway. Um, but uh, but the thing is, is that he, especially in the second book with Ransom's transformation, um, and it's a trilogy. In, it's in a, the uh, in the Paralandra book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, he, you know, for those listening. We're talking about a trilogy called the the Space Trilogy. It's called the Space Trilogy. Yeah, but it's we need to talk about that. Yes, right? and uh, but the the thing that's crazy on that note of you know his observation of what he calls um, he says the wireless contraceptives and there's one other one I can't remember what the third one is, but there's one other one that's relevant to today. Yes, says, I know what you're talking. These about. are uh, I'll look it up while in a second. Um, but he talks about these things, and you're like, okay, so this is just kind of like an analysis on culture, kind of a philosophical take. But he also nails the the psycho-spiritual aspects of this impact in his characters, yes. of like, well, all the questions that Christians would ask in this kind of muddled scientism, spiritualism that would come about, well, like the blending of 
well, my career is more important than the spiritual war that's going on, for example, in Mark's character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and the, the self-doubt that um, I hear this all the time from Christians, like, well, what can I do if it's this bad? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is literally the, the monologue that Ransom has in Paralandra is he's supposed to yes. fight the devil is, yes. well, where's God in all this darkness? And he has the realization that for some reason God has chosen this pasty white philosopher who can barely see past his glasses and has never lifted a weight in his life to mm-hmm. fight a demon, mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think those are the things that are surprising to me is his staying power because it wasn't very well received and now like you you know in one of our episodes we talk about Yuval Noah Harari Yuval is the person that C.S. Lewis is thinking about and even some of their quotes side by side are the exact same philosophy it's just that C.S. Lewis is a warning and Yuval is a good news message to the world yeah that third volume in the quote-unquote space trilogy is is the one that is really a narrative version a fictional narrative version Mm -hmm. of his lectures in the abolition of man and uh, uval could easily have been a character uh in the uh, organization that he depicts in that third volume right yeah very very much so um because there's just there's certain basic fundamental ideas and philosophies that that have you know come out of I don't you know who depends on how far back you want to go yeah. if you want to go to Rousseau or Connor or whatever but you know especially during the twentieth century uh, that um, you know has resulted in uh, the ability to quickly move away from that which is really human yeah uh, in the name of scientific advance or uh, you know some sort of ideological or utopian yep. pursuit. Well, and, and we'll come back to this, too, but you mentioned, you know, how far do you want to go back? So I'm curious about this just for myself. So this is a moment where it's going to be totally about me. So audience, take a minute. But, like, uh, when it comes to how far back you want to go, um, I, I've i speculated that it could go back as far as to nominalism and Occam. Mm-hmm. Because um, I've been doing a little bit of research on that just in my spare time, working on some stuff. And at first I thought it was Descartes. But then you get to, to Occam, and Occam really sets up unintentionally this idea that, well, what matters ultimately at, at core is the individual mm-hmm. and, and essences and the, the basis for natural law is really kind of uh, conjecture. And, and his, his motivation is to protect the omnipotence of God. He thinks that if there's a natural order, you know, God's somehow bound by this. And so in, in, in a sense... Freeing God from this natural order also removed the shackles, or, well, not the shackles, but the, the parameters that man was supposed to operate in as well. And so, um, and then, you, you know, that's way back, you know, that's yeah. post-Thomas Aquinas, but, you know, way before Descartes, he's like 13, he, he think he died in 12, no, I think he died in like 1310, but he, he goes pretty far back. But you can see how those seeds of nominalism... Which again, all these philosophies. Just to be clear, for those, uh, you can't you can't look at a period of history and say that was the period of nominalism because in that thinker's life there were multiple thinkers at the time advocating yes. different ideas. Yes. So, so yes. it's important to understand when we say a period, we're not saying this is the period of nominalism. It's more like this is this is the idea that kind of came out. But Thomas Aquinas or the Greeks or whatever, 
they all had competing different philosophies, and it's kind of like you know the NFL. Sometimes the Patriots win, and that's who's got the rings, <laughs> and then sometimes somebody else wins, and that's the that's the yeah. guys that you didn't really want to win, but yeah. they did. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or some Texas discovered, or some group of Texas discovered something. So yeah. some somebody's come out on the field that uh, you know this is the. Uh, it's cheating. Yeah, they, <laughs> or they just didn't didn't know that they were yeah. there. It's like like oh Occam, goodness, where did he come from? Yeah, Occam's like, well, we'll just get rid of the rules, and then I can have yeah. I can do what I want. Right, right, right. But yeah. you were saying, but coming back to the novel of Mark uh, of the that hideous strength, that hideous strength. You yes. wanted to talk about the space trilogy. Why is it called the space trilogy? It sounded like you had some thoughts on that. It's, well, yeah. See, that's the, the it's kind of weird debate. name too. Well, the thing is, is that and see, this it all fits into to one of Lewis's concerns, and that is the effect that the terms that we use about what we're talking about sets uh, a stage or or it paints a picture. Of reality uh, that can that we can uh, adopt mm-hmm. uh, and can go off into a wrong direction into a false direction. Yeah. So that if you're playing around with the vocabulary, that vocabulary can result in all kinds of different oh, things, and yeah. as time goes by, so that when you have the uh, we'll say the Baconian um, uh, flavoring of scientific investigation or whatever. Um, and uh, the you're talking Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon, yeah, okay. you know where 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 people are are thinking more and more about the materiality of the yep. world that we live in, and the ability to manipulate it and to investigate it in a material fashion, and um, to you know discover things about the material universe that's around us, uh, and well, when it, when that starts getting into the field of astronomy. Uh, you know, you have the uh, di- divorce with Copernicus Galileo from that. Again, it took hundreds of years right. for people to start looking at the, the universe in a, in a non-personal way, yeah. but more of a material sort of a way. Yep. And what happened was that uh, eventually uh, the, the universe, people began to consider the uh the universe as this empty vacuous um cold yeah existence that has spots of of stars and yeah. things in it. and i think it's uh i think it was uh michael ward uh pointed out that i think it was a phrase in milton and i think the devil spoke it um uh, who was the first to to begin to describe the universe in that way mm. and um so that if you call it space, okay, universe we live in, then Im- immediately we think geographically of yeah. em- empty, mm-hmm. empty stuff. It's, there's all this empty nothing there, yeah. you know, um, and uh, and that becomes the the dominant uh, idea, the dominant vision of the universe we live in. It's this cold, vacuous nothing out there, and um, and then anything that has to do with stuff outside of Earth's atmosphere is space. So you yeah. have, so you've got outer space, you've got, and, and, you know, with sci-fi literature, uh, you know, it's all space. And since the, uh, this trilogy, the science, science fiction trilogy that, that Lewis wrote, uh, out of the silent planet, Paralandra, that hideous strength has to do with interplanetary travel and interplanetary right. issues and stuff. So just in terms of like commercial literary, 
parlance, it's a space trilogy, right. you know. Uh, but uh, fam- very famously, uh, uh, it is precisely the opposite point that Lewis is trying to make. Yeah, well, in the first book. In the very first book yeah. with, with the character Ransom on the spaceship. Yep. He's been kidnapped on the spaceship. And he suddenly starts having this feeling that outer space is really this thing that's just full of life and energy. Yes, it's not a vac, a co vacuum. This mm-hmm. is this is like the intensity of life. Yeah, you know, in in the universe. And of course, Lewis is is borrowing from the older medieval cosmological view. There, he's trying to make bring back in the personal quality. So yeah. it's not just matter, but it's also got the material, the uh, the personal side of it as well. And but also just in terms of of thinking in, uh, of, of the God of the creation and yep. his, the intensity of his presence and everything that he has created and, and, and the intensity of life and the potentiality of life and all that he's created. So the idea is that, wow, outer space is really, you know, I'm really liking this kind yeah. of thing. I'm not afraid of it. Right. This is inviting. Yeah, this, well, is, this and- is something that a human being could really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, and so Lewis is trying to counteract the modern materialistic idea yep. of space uh, and try to bring it back to heaven right. or the heavens. Well, and, and it's again, that's another good example because in abolition, I was looking for that quote because there's a quote where he says, when the physicists started looking at the stars, they ceased to be gods. Yes, and, yes. and it's a good example, too, for, for Christians who tend to be uh, hyper, hypersensitive to, to words. You know, C.S. Lewis is not trying to argue for like a a pantheon of gods that needs to be restored. You know, like yeah, yeah. and, and C.S. Lewis is a good example of, uh, and we were talking about it a little bit earlier. He's a good example of of someone who, if he wrote today, would be heavily scrutinized, I think, by fundamentalists. But because he survived <laughs> the fi- the filtration of Christian tradition, you know, uh-huh. yeah, he's very popular amongst like very non-Anglican individuals. I mean, well, you've he, heard the story about Bob Jones Jr., didn't you? No, I haven't heard, did you hear the, oh, about that. Let's let's hear it. This well, is you know, he stuff. met C.S. Lewis at one point. No way. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Shut your mouth. And he was talking to somebody about him. He says that man drinks. <laughs> he smokes, but I think he's a Christian. <laughs> Anglicans are like that. Sounds like my kind of man. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you mentioned how I mean everybody tries to own own Lewis. I mean, the Catholics try to say he really was a Catholic, yeah, you know, and then the Protestant, and then the Baptists, you know, you know, denying that he ever drank a, a you know, yeah. any at all. Oh yeah, you know, he's one of us. I mean, he has a reference to apostolic succession in the abolition of man. Oh yeah, I mean, he's yeah, he's he's right. That we can get off into that. But, yeah, uh, I just think it's funny because there's a lot of parallels because I'm on I'm on Twitter now. I confess. And uh, the Lord have mercy on you, my son. Th- thank you, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the proper liturgy is for receiving that off the top of my head. So I'm pretty sure I just messed it up. I need it. Yeah, thank yeah. You. <laughs> or just yeah. cross yourself. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah there we go. Um, but the, uh, but the thing that's interesting is watching, you know, Jordan Peterson kind of come out of nowhere, and we don't have to go down. I know we've talked. We're gonna, well. We can talk about it a little bit later about his 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 message to the Christian church. Cause I think mm. it is relevant. Cause I think that, oh my. I think C.S. Lewis would have probably said a lot of similar things, but it, not, not in the Jungian stuff. Yeah. But in the sense of like, I mean, men without chests is like the chapter of the abolition of man. Well, he was, and, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, yeah, he's, he, he, he appreciated, uh, men as men. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, but 
he does this thing where he understands he says um it's the the mind working through the heart to to move the body yes and you know we have this hyper stoicism on one side and then you've got this like you're not a godly guy unless you're willing to cry in the pulpit while you're preaching, you know, mm-hmm. kind of attitude. And Jordan Peterson comes along and basically says, stop it. Be a man. Yeah. yeah. You know? And yeah. everybody's like, I don't know what he's talking about yeah. with this dad in the belly of the beast, but oh, yeah. man, I really like it the way he's talking to me. I'm going to, I want to man up. Hey, where's a gun? Can we go kill an animal? I'm feeling a carnal desire no, you start with deep a within fire. me. Yeah. Yeah. You start with, start with a fire. Yeah. Start with a fire, burn down your house. Yeah. And see, that's Phil, that's Phil Robertson's. You know, what do you do when you get all distracted with the culture and you're all disappointed? Well, I'll tell you what a man does. He goes out into the bayou and he builds a fire. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a good idea. But there is a point to this because I do think that one of the frustrations I had was growing up and uh, thinking that people were, you know, fundamentalists. When in actuality, they were, you know, Anglican or they were uh, Catholic or they were uh, maybe Presbyterian. There, there weren't a lot of guys that really grabbed your attention. You know, J.I. Packer was one that was regularly read. Uh, C.S. Lewis is obviously regularly read. Tolkien is regularly read. And then a lot of these Protestants, you know, will, will rip on the religion that is oftentimes the inspiration for their books. You <laughs> yes. Know? And, yeah. and, and I yeah. saw a meme the other day that had... Uh, Catholics, you know, doing, you know, veneration of icons or whatever yeah. and, and, you know, uh, and, and doing a lot of kneeling and kissing and things like that. And it was generated from a, uh, a group of Christians that really liked Tolkien. And it had Tolkien's characters making fun of the Catholics. Oh. And I was like, well, you know, that's kind of ironic. Yes. <laughs> so I just think that C.S. Lewis in this vein is uh, there's just there's such a fixation on, oh, you used the wrong word. Like, even amongst the leftists, even amongst the fundamentalists, it's like the moment something comes in that's unknown. Like, if C.S. Lewis wrote this today, a bunch of Christians would be like, why are you calling it the Tao? Why are you calling the natural well, law the Tao? Yeah, that's, that would be as, you know, very bibliocentric Christians who don't quite have a broad, a, a broad enough view. Let's put it this way. You know, when a lot of times when you're reading something, you're bringing your questions or your, the answers you already have with you, so yeah. to speak. And so you may miss what else is there. And there's all kind of stuff about what we have in common as human beings. Yes. Uh, Romans one, Romans yeah. two, so forth. Uh, that is there. It's biblical. Yep. But if you're just, if you're, if you're just thinking in a more of a narrow evangelical kind of, of way, then um, you look at something like that, you think it's worldly. Yeah. I mean, how can you give any credit, you know, to Confucius? Yes. yes. That's heresy. Yeah. You know, but it's a failure to understand uh, what the your Bible says about creation yeah. and humanity right. and the image of God. It just yeah. so happens that, you know, n- not everybody, whatever their beliefs, are completely, like you know, com- completely in error. Yeah. There's some some things that they believe that are true. Otherwise, they wouldn't know to drink clean water right. or you know to you know right. eat non-poisonous right. or plants. Every or every time you're quoting Confucius to begin with, Confucius say, yeah, right, right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but coming back to the hideous strength, what do you think are some of the big themes in that book that are really relevant to today? And you know, feel free to you know dive well, into whatever aspects you want. Yeah, the 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 main one is 
this whole business. Well, the main the main one is the thrust of the book of the abolition of man, mm-hmm. which is this divorce of humans in their minds and eventually in their actions as a result of uh, of, of what you could call what is both qualitative as well as what is not just quantitative, but what is also qualitative about the nature of a human being. Uh, so, so that uh, it's, it's a, a severe reductionism, uh, but behind, you know, where, where we're just matter. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is where all the evolutionary stuff comes in, you know, where you're just, we're, we're just chance to develop matter or whatever. But then people get mystical about it. Yeah. To where they they start adding value for for out of nowhere. Yes. Uh, to You're talking to the evolutionists. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start adding value to say the human creature. Yeah. Um, which we are just one other creature among all the other creatures that we can put in a test tube and study right. and that sort of thing. But we start adding value to ourselves in some way. And it's just out of the blue. There's yeah. no philosophical reason for having it there. Right. It's arbitrary. It becomes a religious thing. Yep. But uh, at the same, while, while that's going on, and it's basically an overly reductionist, reductionist, materialistic look at the universe and of the nature of man, behind all that at the same time is all this scientific methodology and mm-hmm. advance that's been going along with this yep. that flavors it. Yeah. This is where we had this idea that science was, you know, follow the science. Yes. Science is like a, a, a sem, you know, like a, a minor god. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. man, man is the god, but you right. know, the 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 science is the minor god, and he's he or like maybe like our priest or maybe our prophet or something. Yeah. This tells us what's true. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, and even some of the philosophers like C.S. Peirce, you know, talked about the idea of uh, he was a pragmatist. And he talked about, you know, the white lab coats and the, these uh-huh. guys. I mean, yeah, these yeah. are the guys that we need to listen yeah, to. Yeah. You know, I mean, they are a kind of priestly order. And when you think about, you know, and I know we've talked about this before off off uh, air, but the idea of, you know, liturgy and like vestments and yeah. things like that. Once you start, and I think it's really good for anybody listening to just kind of study liturgy, you mm-hmm. know, like just why do they do that? Why does that group do that? What are they trying to do? Yeah, there's a reason for yeah. those things. And yeah. understanding that a lot of times it comes about by virtue of the context that they're in. It's like, well, we, we've got to, you, know, you got to identify yourself as whatever. So we got to put something on you. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. let's, yeah. let's make it a whatever, you yeah. know? Yeah. And then there's like, oh, yeah, that works because it has this significance or this meaning or whatever. Yeah. Um, the development of these ideas in, in, you know, what's actually worn and stuff. Is across it's a it's it's a human phenomenon it seems it is um, you know because you anybody who grew up Baptist knew exactly what the pastor was going to wear right he was going to wear a suit and yeah. he was going to have a tie and yeah. he was the pastor and you know you were kind of like you weren't supposed to like wear exactly what he wore but you should at least kind of be like a step down, step down. you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then the guy who showed up who was a guest with, with his you know Hawaii shirt on yeah. obviously you know he's either going to get mauled by greeters or he's going to get kicked out no you're chance. not sure what's going to happen yeah well so like yeah so so you got the guys in the lab coats yeah. that they're the they're the elite experts on everything and so yep. when we go to them for all of our answers so what happens is there are um the, the the scientific world and of course now we we must include the technological yes. world um, because they work in tandem together 100%. all right uh, so that there are certain things certain directions in uh, possible achievements mm-hmm. and manipulations of nature that they are able to to move in a certain direction yep. and then you've got the people 
who look at human beings uh, as this this creature um, that uh, and we happen to be one. Yes. And for some reason we well, have you're one. We I, happen I'm to not. be the most important ones. <laughs> uh, and so and and with this idea of the of of uh, social and human uh, evolution, yeah. Darwinism going yep. on. So there's there should be some kind of progress going on. Yeah. We should be advancing from uh, into a new a new species. Yep. So how do we bring about this new species? Well, we lean on the the science and technological achievements to help us to achieve this new species. Yep. And uh, so what what you have then is you've got human beings uh, experimenting with human beings mm-hmm. uh, like rats. Yep. Uh, in order to somehow advance this religious utopianism. Yes. Um, and what happens is it gets out of control. Yep. And and and, and, it's, and especially with the fact that, as Lewis points out in Abolition of Man, is there, there's somebody that's going to be deciding what the goals right. are. Yep. There's going to be somebody deciding the methods that are used to reach those goals. Yep. And there's going to be then there's going to be somebody deciding who doesn't get to go doesn't get to benefit from any of this right. and these sorts of things. So that you wind up. So it all turns into. Uh, what he I love this term he uses in that third chapter is that there are certain elite that become the conditioners. Yes. They are the ones who are in charge of the process yep. of evolutionary advancement via technology and science and right. so forth. So that you 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 can see how you started out with a materialistic view of, of human beings so that eventually they just become one part of what you conduct in experiments on. You're used to conducting experiments on things. Yeah. Now you can conduct experiments on them. Yep. You can do this genetic engineering and all the rest of it. Yeah. And and so uh, you you are moving towards to begin with. It's it's dehumanizing because yep. you're moving away from what human beings actually are. And as yeah. they were created, this is where you're moving a biblical doctrine creation. In. Yep. It also winds up being extremely cruel mm-hmm. and and. And, you know, it can just be ugly and just right. dehumanizing. Yeah, it can just yeah. become really awful. So, so what Lewis is, is trying to warn about is, is this co-opting of natural, normal, happy human life, yep. healthy human, holistic, ha- happy human, healthy life by these crazy utopians yep. that get into seats of power and they got this, this scientific stuff and so yep. forth and they start trying to move things off. Right. And, and he's trying to warn that, you know, this is this is going to destroy man. That's why, yeah. that's why the book is called the abolition of man. Right. You wind up abolishing man yeah. instead of nurturing and yeah. continuing man. And, and you know, you could say abolition of humanity. Yes, because exactly. I think man with yeah. capital M, right? Humanity. Yeah, because yes, I uh-huh. when I first read the title of this, you know, I looked at it and I was like, I have abolition of man, and I, I was thinking Adam. I was You're thinking, thinking gender. Yeah, I was thinking what what is he what is he talking yeah. about? But what he is talking about, he's talking the essence or the nature of man and the thing that is so brilliant about him is that he is warning people about the destruction of humanity will lead to catastrophe and what's interesting is that you have somebody who's a christian who was a materialist who fell into if the documentary is accurate into the occult at one point which Mm -hmm. if you want to dive into that a little bit we can because the documentary didn't talk much about it but it it was a brief moment and he in that documentary, uh, have you seen that, by the way? The, Which one? Uh, the one where it's a new one. It's called The Most Reluctant Convert. Yes. It's dramatization. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Just out of curiosity. Oh, it's thing. very good. Okay, Max good. is a good guy. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Do you know him? Uh, yeah. I, well, we know each other. I mean, we've been on stage together, that kind Shut of thing. Shut your but, mouth. No, I haven't performed. I, mean, I interviewed him on stage when he had 
was no uh, way. here first. Yeah, I'm so going to definitely ask you to help me out with that. <laughs> <laughs> you tell him that we're a good breakfast. We oh. do a great. We put them up real good. Yes. I want yes. to meet Max. Okay. But, you know, the thing the thing about that hideous strength, though, is that what, what Lewis does is he turns it into a story, and you have this organization called NICE, N-I-C-E, yes. yep. that is actually the power that's trying to perpetuate yeah. uh, these sorts of ideals and manipulations. Yep. They're the villain of the story. They're the villains of the story. Yep. They're, this is, that's where Uval would work. Yep. And, um, and then uh, what happens is God just intervenes. Yeah. Uh, and in a in a, uh, a wonderful way, yeah. and, and and throws in Ar- the Arthurian legend in yes. there as well. Lew- Lewis's Merlin is the best Merlin in legend. Oh yeah, he is absolutely fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what what I wanted to touch on was a lot of people will read 1984, yeah, and they'll read Brave New World, mm-hmm. and they're an Animal Farm, yeah, and and those are good in terms of the technological dystopian or the the political dystopian. Or whatever you want to call it, but the the reason why I think Lewis is uh, part of that trifecta with the hideous strength, he is, is because he gets at the spiritual component. If you yes. were to talk to somebody yes. about does materialism logically end in a religious state, it seems counterintuitive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But here's what's crazy: you read the abolition of man, and even I'm like, man. If Yuval didn't exist as like a, a younger millennial guy growing up in this kind of culture, if you didn't have the Yuvals of the world, you'd be like, man, Lewis, this kind of seems like a stretch. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I know some materialists, like, they're definitely not all about meditation. But then you've got, like, Sam Harris coming out, and now he's starting to get more meditative. He got rejected by some of the, neo, the neo-atheists who were staunch materialists. And uh, they didn't really like the fact that he was getting into some of this mindfulness stuff and kind of leaving the materialism. Yuval Noah Harari actually dedicates Homo Deus to a Indian meditative coach, you know, at the introduction of the book. And the thing is, is that Lewis is warning people about the destruction of the human essence, and these guys are praising the destruction of the human essence. Yes. And in a lot of ways, they end up validating Lewis, Yeah, and they end up making all the people who actually act like nothing, there's nothing really going on. Stop worrying about, you know, these kinds of issues with COVID or follow the science. Like we should follow the science. We're a rational creature, Christian creatures. You know, we don't want to be considered superstitious. And Lewis ties it. Well, you know, magic and science aren't really that far off in their relationship. That's right. They're, they've got a close relationship. Yeah. And, and so now if you read Abolition of Man, you can spot the superstitious scientism that's out there that is akin to the magician before Bacon that he ties in. And he says it's not actually about, you know, the furtherance of, you know, the human species. It's about power. It's about power. Yes, it is. But, and this is uh, what what you're you're getting at here, is is that... uh, we can't help but become religious about stuff yes. because that's who we really are. Yeah. So that's the things we are spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. We're not just material beings. So we can be as try, try to be as materialistic as we can possibly be, but we'll work religion in there yep. without even trying yeah. because we can't help it. Yeah. And so when people get off to these other more spiritual sides of things, mm-hmm. that's just the, the display of human nature. Yeah. Hey, you're looking at a human being struggling with trying to be a materialist yeah. in a in a world that is not just material. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing you brought up was the intersection between scientism and technology. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think people misunderstand 
um, is is that they don't understand that the I don't want to use a big word, but I'm going to start with it and Uh-oh. then try and go in. But the epistemic effects of devices, yeah. okay, meaning yeah, yeah, yeah. how a device affects what you know. Mm-hmm. For example, we know this from Google, right? If a yes. conservative types yes. on Google, the the results are going to be different than if a leftist mm-hmm. types on Google. Mm-hmm. And and the the there's a great YouTube video from way back before all this stuff was going on called Filter Bubbles. See if it's still on YouTube. Maybe they pulled it down. But there was a Democrat doing a talk. This is more for the audience real quick. I'll come back to what I was talking about in a second, where he talks about, you know, the fact that filter bubbles are a problem in the search engine algorithms because it's polarizing us. Mm -hmm. And he pulls up a friend of his search results and puts his search results side by side, and they are completely different for the same exact term. And what people don't realize, though, is that because of this effect, this effect also occurs in the laboratory. The tools that a lab technician uses is going to limit the results that he could get. Exactly. And and so he is, quote unquote, following the science. Mm-hmm. But what's implied in that is that the science is a natural thing that's just in the world, not a construct. Yes. But because there is an artificial window that they're looking through, they don't know how much they're cutting off. In other words, you don't yes. know what you don't know. Exactly. And so when people say follow the science, it's like having a map of that that's incomplete. Uh they've only got that one thing and so when people are talking about you know i really feel like the world economic forum i feel like these political groups i feel like something's off with them right why are all these executives leaving the nhs and the cdc yeah well and and the thing we'll come back to that but the thing i was going to get at is it's the idea of they you don't have to have some sort of like bond villain scenario in order for a catastrophe to happen and so a lot of times people will be looking for intent. And Lewis says this. Uh, he says, you know, now some of the less thoughtful people will say, well, what makes you think that these people are going to be so bad? Right. And, and right. that question is asked today. You bring it up is. like criticisms of Fauci. You bring up criticisms of any of these things. And they're like, well, why do you think he's such a bad guy? I mean, obviously he What's wouldn't. What's wrong with you? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, because it's not even necessarily that he's a bad guy. That's not what we're trying to say. That's right. It's that the framework that they're operating under is going to limit what their options are and the results they could get. And so, like, if you have big tech and you want to validate something, let's say they're actually pursuing the the truth. They're trying to follow the truth wherever it leads, as Sanger would, or not Sanger, uh, his (laughs) name. Uh, Ah, man, I can't remember his name, but he's a famous atheist. But the point is, is that you've got a very interesting combination of, what do I need to validate my scientific theory? Well, I need data. Yes. And you're at a time where big data drives everything. Mm -hmm. And if you're a scientist, to have an experiment with more data is like a goldmine. And now you have things coming out where it's like, well, we just got to try experimental drug on the entire world and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And you actually have the technology to actually process what those results could be and then decide what's going to be next. For those. Right. But now imagine, though. If you don't actually have smartphones, you don't actually have data, you don't have the ability to track very well who's actually gotten the vaccine or whatever, this would limit what you would actually want to do and might put you in a different direction. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm trying to get at in the sense of like the technology yes. is influenced the kind of scientism that right. you might actually try to implement. Yeah, so you just have the practicalities yep. of 
data gathering and data processing, however it's done. Yeah. You're, there's going to be, because we're finite creatures right. and we live in a finite world, so there's going to be you know limitations. Some of them may be purposeful yep. if there's something political going on, or it can just be accidental. Yeah. Um, and But then you also bring in the human factor as well. And that is, you never know when an ego may get involved. You mm-hmm. never know when a uh, you know somebody's pride might get involved. Yeah. Because or just simple human error. Yeah. You know which and and someone who's really sincerely, mm-hmm. just with their whole life in it, really wants to know the truth. Yeah. Uh, they're going to get farther than a lot of other people get in finding the truth. Yep. But that doesn't mean that's not going to be problems of some kind, yeah. just because that's just who we are as human beings right. and and in world we're living in. And so that there is no such thing as one particular elite expert who is a truth seeker upon whom we can always 100% rely upon. Yeah. You know, it's just the same, same thing as, okay, how about if we go this way? Uh, same thing is with papal infallibility. <laughs> oh, you know? oh boy. Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> Take cover. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, and and you know, I, and I know what's going on with it. I, That's I, I right. almost do that for the fun, but it's just another example. We're of, in a safe space. <laughs> it's just another example of of how we we. This is why we must have limits. Yeah, and we must have self governing limits as well. We and 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 humility. Yep. Uh, because otherwise, we start making. We start putting people on pedestals they have no business being on. Mm-hmm. We start giving power to people yep. uh, who have no business having yeah. that much power. Yep. Because it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, and 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 I think what's interesting, what what you're talking about, and what brings it up, and kind of relates to the abolition of man, or uh, the that hideous strength, is the question of, you know. Why is it that people are so, and we'll bring it back to the churches on a local level, what's what's interesting to me is how many people are willing to trust their government over, but but be incredibly critical of their own Christian religion and denomination. So oh they'll, my, they'll yes. be they'll be willing to say like, well, you know, I mean, pastors, oh my, yes. you know, pedophiles, but you isn't know. Isn't that, is, isn't there like an intellectual laziness there? Oh I mean, yeah, 100%. Some, some sort of a moral flaw. There? Well, yeah, the moral flaw is, is that your local church is your responsibility. And if you can just say that like, well, it's it's beyond help. Yes, your, but your also but is, also you've got no business uh attributing to uh a an, an earthly institution uh you know, perfectibility or yes. whatever. You yeah. Know, well, treating it like a god. So, like one of the things that was interesting, I was listening to this podcast with uh, uh, Jack Carr. He's a famous guy now because he's done the Terminal List and he's done, and that's all on Amazon Prime. It's number one this week and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I started going down the rabbit hole on some of his interviews, and he was interviewing one of his fellow Navy SEAL guys, um, and the they were talking about some of their personal experiences. It was just basically kind of like another podcast, you know, where guys talk about their human experience, um, and he brought up the fact this other seal brought up the fact that he was he was frustrated with some of the politics that had gotten into some of the military Shoot, stuff. Yeah. And he said, but I still believe that God can use the organization of the seals to stop evil and things like that. God's still doing good things there. And I'm like, oh man. So he suddenly drops this Christian card, right? <laughs> yeah. Out of nowhere in the middle of this podcast. Yeah. And he says, but the reason why I'm still uh, you know, hopeful is because I'm a Christian and I see a lot of parallels to corruption in the government with corruption in the church, but that doesn't mean I leave my church. 
that doesn't mean that I'm naive about my church. That And he starts making these parallels. And it's like, well, yeah, like, I mean, as a human being, we're both political and spiritual animals. But what's happening is what COVID really did, and you saw this, I don't know if you saw about the Catholics who were in Canada. One of them was a bishop. He was requiring COVID-19 proof before he could take the Eucharist. Did you see that for 16 no, years? No, I didn't up? see that. Yeah, that was jacked up. And um, But when the when priests do that, they uh, Rod Dreher shared it out, and uh, okay. so it was like it was it was a big story at the time. And when 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 the churches decided that they were not going to separate themselves from the government edicts, they implied to everybody, "This is your new boss." Uh, yes, because there's yeah. nothing else above it. And and I think the thing that's very odd is you know C.S. Lewis and the Hideous Strength is like. Yeah, you should probably have a healthy skepticism of these guys. And in the abolition of man, definitely like you're almost morally flawed if you don't have a healthy skepticism right, of these guys. Right, yeah. And in that hideous strength, Mark Studdick, I think, really does fit this kind of character. Him and Jane both, and we can get into, you know, the inner ring and the membership that we were we were talking about on the phone earlier on this. But he, you know, they really do characterize that kind of psychological state that Lewis is describing in Abolition of Man and is prevalent today. Because you bring up any sort of skepticism about whether or not the government had your best interests in mind, and people are like, ah, shut up, conspiracy theorists, whatever. You know, it's very concerning. But you read the, that hideous strength, and you're like, oh, my word, the nice is Google. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, and Mark yeah. Studdick is more concerned about his career than he is about yeah, doing right, what's right. right and yeah. you read Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, and his whole thing is basically to middle-class Americans, don't put your career above the spiritual war that's happening right now. Hey everyone, this is a great conversation with my friend, Father David Beckman. I hope you enjoyed it. We are going to be continuing this conversation next week. This was a long forum interview, two-part discussion on C.S. Lewis and the Space Trilogy. So if you want to hear the rest of our conversation and get into more nitty-gritty details about C.S. Lewis and the Space Trilogy and the Ransom Cycle, Make sure you tune in next week. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so you're notified. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave us a five-star Apple review and write your thoughts there. It really helps us out, get guests like Father David Beckman onto the show. So make sure that you are leaving five-star reviews wherever you listen to our podcast, but specifically Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a five-star written review. And again, don't forget, keep thinking. Keep thinking.